Um, every great headliner, every great artist, every great band uh, deserves an opening act. Uh, someone to warm up the crowd, uh, someone to stoke the fire, stir the pot, you know, grease the wheels. Uh, someone to get everybody ready for the main attraction for the main event. Um, a few years ago, we went to a New Year's Eve concert in Nashville with some friends, and uh, we were going to see Jimmy Buffett. And uh, I didn't even know who the opening act was that evening. And, and then we got there, and I found out that the opening act was Huey Lewis and the News. And every time I hear Huey Lewis and the News, I think, you know, hip to be square and, you know, the power of love and back in time. I mean, when I listen to Huey Lewis and the News, I feel like I'm listening always to the Back to the Future soundtrack. I, I mean, I just associate all of his music with, with Back to the Future, though. I know that's not the case, but, but he sounded so good that night. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was New Year's Eve. It was frigid that night. It was one of the coldest nights Nashville had had in years. And then Buffett gets up there and he, he was just on point. And it was just a great night. It was going to be a great night. I mean, it was Jimmy Buffett. It was New Year's Eve. It was going to be great. But, but the opening act just made everything better because that's, that's, what they, that's what they do. Uh, a few months ago, back in November, uh, I went, uh, me and Allison with a couple of friends, and we went to Minneapolis, Minnesota to see one of the best musical artists in all of history. Uh, somebody who has 60, 60 number one hits, uh, 13 multi-platinum albums, 33 platinum albums, 38 gold albums. I'm talking about someone who is a living legend who happens to be the current reigning king of country music. And I'm talking about none other than George Strait. Can I get a witness, everybody? I mean, George, okay, now you're my people. All right, George Strait. And it's like, okay, uh, George was gonna rock it no matter what. I mean, he was gonna come out there in those light faded jeans. I don't even know where you buy jeans like George wears, but he rocks them and he rocks them well. He was gonna come out, you know, in his button up. It was gonna be stars. He's gonna have his hat on. He's gonna have his guitar. And, and, and it was just going to be amazing. The, the moment that he, you know, strummed his guitar and started singing Amarillo by morning up from San Antonio, everything that I've got is just what I've got on. I ain't got a dime, but what I got is mine. I ain't rich, but Lord, I'm free. Amarillo by morning. That's where I'll be. I mean, it was going to be incredible. I mean, no matter what him, you know, singing, you know, I'm a fireman. That's my name. I go all over town, putting out old flames. I mean, everybody was going to go crazy. Everybody just knew what was going to happen. You know, check yes or no, or I'll still make Cheyenne, you know, all that. It was going to be incredible. But there was an opening act there for the king himself that night. And it was Little Big Town. And, and I, going into that, I, I really didn't know that much about Little Big Town. I, I knew some of their songs, but I, I wasn't necessarily a fan or not a fan. But, but they showed up as, you know, the opening act, and they did 15 songs. I mean, and I'm telling you, when they, when they started singing Girl Crush, oh, Lord Jesus. I, I feel like something happened in the room. People pulled out their iPhones, you know, they had their lights on, and everybody's just singing. And I, I don't know what the blonde's name is, but her hair was on point that night. It was incredible. And, and I mean, it was just an amazing thing. I mean, it, I mean, they, the crowd was going crazy, but after little big town, it wasn't over because when you're the king of country music, you, you have an opening act and, and it was Chris Stapleton and, and he comes out there with his wife and his band. He's kind of scaled back and, you know, he does his thing the way he does it. And all he needed to do, all he needed to do was sing Tennessee whiskey and women were like Play-Doh in his hands. I mean, you're as smooth as Tennessee whiskey. You're as sweet as strawberry wine. You're as warm as Brent. Oh my Lord. I'm telling you, it was amazing. And, and the opening act that night did exactly what they were supposed to do. They were getting everybody primed and ready for when the king of country music, George Strait, would take the stage. And that's what opening acts do. Opening acts get people ready for what's getting ready to happen. 
Now, today we're in part three of the series that we're calling The Kingdom. And in this series, we're chasing down this theme, this idea of the kingdom of God that's diffused all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And when Matthew, who followed Jesus, when he, when he sat down with the pen and he started to articulate or to try to capture or sum up the prevailing, the reoccurring, the overarching, the foundational message that Jesus would be preaching on any given day in any given place to any given group of people, he said this. He says, from that time on, from the time that Jesus stepped onto the public stage, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this was the message. This was the message that had some people excited and hopeful. And this was the message that had some people troubled and angry. Uh, This was the message that had everybody talking. It was starting a firestorm. This was the message that caused many people to love Jesus. And this was the message that caused a lot of people to hate Jesus. This was the message that some people found encouraging, but this was also the message that some people found threatening. This was the message that was gaining Jesus' popularity, but this was also the message that was going to cost Jesus his life. This was the message you could find him preaching on any given day in any given place. Repent, stop, just stop what you're doing. Think a little bit, listen a little bit, because something has happened that is inviting you to think differently about everything. Something has happened that's inviting you to think differently about God, about you, about sin, and about everybody else and about the world you live in. Something that's inviting you to think differently about your past, your present, and your future. Something has happened that's gonna demand you choose sides. Something has happened that's going to cause you to declare your allegiances. It's the kingdom of God that has come near. Somehow heaven is intruding upon earth. And that was what Matthew captured. He said, listen, if you wanna know what Jesus was talking about, his message was the kingdom had come near. This is what he talked about more than anything else. And this is really important because this can give you a brand new set of eyes as you read through the New Testament and you read through the gospel specifically. Everything that Jesus said flowed out of this. Everything that Jesus taught was connected back to this. This was the foundation for all of his other words and all of his other teachings. It was emotionally charged, but yet it was historically rooted in the stories and the promises of the Old Testament. This idea that the kingdom had come near just wasn't the heart and center of Jesus's message. It was the theme, it was the background, it was the bedrock, it was the pass key to understand all that Jesus would teach So to understand the meaning behind what Jesus said or the reason why Jesus said what he said or what he meant by what he said, it's to understand that everything he said, it flowed out of this message of repent, the kingdom has come near. So when Matthew sat down to write the gospel of Matthew, he latched onto this theme. He latched onto this theme in order to make it the focus of his biography because it was the heart and the soul of Jesus's message and it became the driving force behind the story that Matthew wanted to tell to the entire world. And the story that he wanted to tell was the kingdom had come near because the king had come near and there would be no neutral ground. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, you know, something we only typically talk about at Christmas, which is Matthew chapters one and two. And in Matthew chapter one and two, Matthew tells the story of the birth of Jesus, but it was more than just the birth of Jesus. It was actually a narrative about the birth of a king, a long awaited king, a king whose birth had been promised in the Old Testament centuries before. And so Matthew tells the story about the birth of this king, this newborn king of the Jews. 
He tells the story about the Magi who were kingmakers. And he told the story about King Herod who was threatened by this newborn king of the Jews. And he tells this story because the, the, the point was not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and three wise men, and, and all the things that we typically hear about at Christmas. The point was what happened at Jesus's birth would happen throughout Jesus's life. What happened at his birth would happen throughout his life. When Jesus was born, lines were drawn. When Jesus was born, decisions were forced. Allegiances were exposed. When Jesus the king was born, there was no room for neutrality. The kingdom had come near, the king had come near, and you would either bow your knee to the king or you would resist his kingdom and embrace your own. So that's how Matthew, he, he ends the story with Jesus the toddler in chapter two. And then in between chapter two and chapter three are 25 years of history that we don't know that much about. Because Jesus is a toddler in chapter three, but chapter two, but in chapter three, Matthew picks it up with Jesus as a grown man. He's 30 years or, or so of age. And, and Matthew's gonna begin to tell a whole other part of the story because he's telling a story and, and there's a theme to it. And the theme is the kingdom of God has come near. The king has come near. There's no neutral ground. So in chapter three, what does he do? He introduces us to Jesus's opening act. If the king has been born, if the king is gonna be introduced to the world, then the king should have an opening act. And the opening act would be none other than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, if you don't know anything about him, he's an eccentric guy. I mean, he's eccentric, he's, he's austere, he, he's bold. He says what's on his mind, he says what's in his heart. He's, he's brash, he is confident, he knows what he thinks. He's confident about it, he's a man of pedigree, but he doesn't have pretension. He has no formal education. He has no institutional authority behind him, yet he's got the ear of the people. He's a pioneer, he's an innovator, He's a disruptor of the status quo. You could call him a bit uncivilized. He doesn't fit into the categories of his day. He doesn't fit into the social categories. He doesn't fit into the religious categories of his day. His message is polarizing. You either like him or you hate him. He has an undeniable flair about him. So whether you like him or you hate him, you probably find yourself talking about him. You're intrigued by him because he sounds a lot like a prophet and there's not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. He reminds some people about Elijah and how Elijah was and how Elijah preached. And, and so there's something intriguing about this guy. But when it comes to John, John knew his purpose. He knew God's plan for his life. He knew what he was sent to do. He was sent to be the opening act. He was sent to get people ready. He was sent to stir the pot to stoke the fire, to grease the wheels, to get everybody ready for the main event. And that's how Matthew begins. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came and he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John, some of you know, some of you may not know, but his dad was Zachariah, he was a priest, and his mom was Elizabeth, and she was descended from priests. So he, he was born to this, uh, this priestly family in Jerusalem, which means he was born into some very rich pedigree because both his dad and his mom, their pedigree went all the way back to the very first high priest of Israel, a guy by the name of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. So, so these were people with great 
family genes. These were people who had a great pedigree. Uh, they were part of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, which meant that they were at the heart of the religious structure and the political structure and the power structure and the economic structure in the nation of Israel. They're part of the aristocracy in Jerusalem. So they're, they're part of the who's who. They've got connections, they've got power. Most likely they had some wealth. But yet when we meet Jeremiah, he's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the place of the temple. He's not where the priesthood is. He's not in the center of things in Jerusalem. He's in the wilderness. And for John, the temple is his wilderness. The wilderness is his temple. His altar is the Jordan River and his priestly vestments. It's a robe made of camel's hair. Now, when it, when it says that he was out in the wilderness, there's some things that Matthew's audience would have thought about that we don't think about because we're, we're not that audience and we're pretty far removed. But, but the wilderness, the one thing that I remember from my first trip to Israel, and we're getting ready to go back this summer, but the one thing that I remember about our trip to the wilderness, to the desert, and, and that's really what it is, it's the desert. The wilderness was the place where people would go to be with God, the place where they would go to meet with God when they, needed, when they needed to hear from God because the wilderness was monochromatic. It was just all brown. There, 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 were, there were no other colors. There was nothing to you know, capture your attention. It was quiet and it was just, it was a very stilled environment. It was very quiet and, and so people would go so they wouldn't be distracted. And so out there in the wilderness emerges this, this eccentric guy who has a father who was a priest and his mother who's descended from priests. And he's out there and he's preaching. And there's some excitement in the air because nobody knows what's up, but everybody has a sense that something is up. Something is different. Maybe a prophet has shown up for the first time in four centuries. And so John's out there in the wilderness and he's got a message and it's clear, it's succinct. And you're gonna recognize it. Here was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And once again, we recognize this message being the message that Jesus will show up preaching. But before Jesus would ever preach this message about repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near, it was John's message. And again, the message was this, stop, stop what you're doing because something has happened that is inviting you to think differently about everything, about God, who he is and what he's like and what he's done. Something is inviting you because something has happened. It's inviting you to think differently about sin. What is sin? What isn't sin? How does sin work? What does sin do? That causes you to think differently about you and about everybody else. That causes you to think differently about your past, your present, and your future. Now, when John started preaching repentance, you know, it's not what we grew up thinking. It wasn't behavior modification. Re repentance was not the message of stop it. Would you just stop it? Just knock it off, stop it. That wasn't, that wasn't it at all. When John talked about repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. He was talking about a radical reorganization of our values that's based on a brand new vision for what our lives are supposed to look like. A brand new vision of what it's supposed to look like to be fully human. So when he was saying repent, he was telling people, you need to radically reorganize the values of your life based around a brand new vision, a vision of a kingdom that has come near, a vision of a king who has come near. And so when he preached about repentance, it was about lines being drawn. It was about a choice having to be made. It was about allegiances having to be declared. 
And in John's mind, it was about surrendering to a king who's offering a brand new set of values based on a brand new vision for what it means to be human. A kingdom that has a law to live by, ethics to embrace, promises to claim, and a community to enjoy. This is what he was saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the same message that Matthew makes a point to say that Jesus was preaching, that Jesus was preaching all the time. Stop because God has done something. God has done something that's about to change everything. A new day is dawning. A new era is beginning. A new covenant is being inaugurated. And John knew what he was there to do. He was there to prepare the way. He was there to set the stage. He was there to grease the wheels. He was there to be the opening act, to get people ready for the main event. He was there to get people ready for the arrival of the king. And Matthew goes on, he says, so this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And once again, Matthew does what Matthew does. He reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches back centuries into Jewish literature. And he says, what I watched happen in real time was actually predicted before time. It was actually promised before time. And so he goes back to the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before these events that Matthew are writing about happen. 700 years before, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 40, and he lifts a little piece of that scripture out to describe what John is doing, to describe the mission of John, the purpose of John. Now, I think it's helpful for us to just pause for a moment to just take a look at some of those verses, not all of those verses, because Isaiah 40, it's loaded, it's great, it's incredible. But I think it's helpful for us to look at a few verses because Isaiah 40, in my opinion, was very formative and informative for John's ministry, for what John was doing, what he understood that he was doing. So listen to how Isaiah said it seven centuries before. This is what he says in Isaiah 40. He says, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a, stri a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill the valleys, level the mountains and the hills, straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. And I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Oh, Zion, messenger of good news. Not bad news, not somber news, not sad news, not mediocre news, but good news, shout from the mountaintops, shout it louder, O Jerusalem, shout and do not be afraid, tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Somehow, the God of the cosmos, the transcendent, eternal, infinite, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God was stepping into time and space and John understood that his message was to tell everybody, your God is coming. He's stepping in to your wilderness. He's stepping into the wasteland and he's bringing life. 
He's stepping into the desert and he's bringing water. He's stepping into the barrenness of our lives and existence and he's bringing meaning and purpose. Your God is coming. So Matthew, he reaches back and when he tries to describe John and what he's doing, he says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John knew that his role was to be a forerunner. And in those days, kings would have an envoy that would run ahead of them. They would have a herald that would go before them, a forerunner that would go and announce to the people, people like us, maybe living in a village and the king was coming in and the forerunner would show up and say, hey, everybody get ready. Everybody prepare for the arrival of the king. The king is coming. He'll be here shortly. Do what you must because you can't meet him the way you are. Decisions will have to be made. Allegiances will have to be declared. There is no neutrality when the king comes. So prepare yourselves. The king is coming. And so John, he understood that was his role. It was to clear the way of obstacles for the way of the king. He was making a way. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. A guy by the name of Chad Birch, I came across an article that he wrote and he he was kind of describing you know, the phenomenon of John the Baptist and his voice in the wilderness and, and the, the disruption that he was causing and the uncomfortableness of his, of his message and ministry. And this is, this is how he describes it. He says, John, he beckons you, he beckons me, he beckons us, he beckoned them away from that place called civilization because people were leaving the cities and they were leaving the suburbs and they were coming out into the wilderness to listen to him. He beckons you away from that place called civilization where civilized sinners are all too easily duped into believing the lie. Leave that place where you're easily tricked into believing that your job is your life. Your family is your life. Your possessions are your life. Leave that place where trivial pursuit is just not a game, but it has become a way of life. Leave that place where death masquerades as life, where that person who is living it up has made pleasure into a God, where the person who is said to have lived a full life may have never been converted, where real life has nothing to do with Christ, but just getting by in a dog eat dog world. Leave that place where people think they have civilized sin, but where in fact sin has transformed them into savages at heart. And this is why John was creating such unrest among the people in the land. And Matthew, he, he, he sets it up and he says he's a voice and he's crying for repentance. He's saying that the kingdom is coming near. And then he, he tells us a little bit about John. He says, John, his clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. And he points out that John was not a GQ kind of guy. He, he didn't wear a priestly robe. He, he didn't wear religious garments. He, he was dressed in coarse camel hair, which Coincidentally, I discovered in my research, it was waterproof. And so I'm sure he was chafed half the time wearing that thing, but he tied it together, nice ensemble with a belt. And he was out there and he was preaching. He's got bug legs stuck between his teeth. I mean, he's just a grizzly guy out there just preaching and people don't know what to make. make you don't know how to make sense of him because he's dressed weird. He, he's eating bugs drizzled with honey. And I mean, it's just, it, it's such a drastic contrast to what people know in Jerusalem what people know in the religious circles throughout Judea. He's a contrast to all of that. Matter of fact, everything about him, the way that he speaks, the way that he's dressed, the way that he's chosen to live his life, it's a protest 
in the face of status quo. He's like a nomadic desert dweller. And he's out there and he's telling people, get ready, get ready, get ready. The king is coming. It's time to reorder your lives and reorganize your lives. It's time to abandon all the other inferior allegiances and declare your allegiance to the king. The kingdom has come near. And so he's out there preaching and Matthew says people went out to hear him. People from Jerusalem and all Judea, from all over the whole region of the Jordan, they went out there. The crowds are huge, the excitement's palpable. John's out there talking about the arrival of the king, the arrival of a kingdom. And for the Jewish people dominated by the empire of Rome, they were thirsty for independence. They were thirsty for freedom. So any talk about a kingdom or a, or a king, it, it was very intriguing. It was very exciting. And so they're flocking out to the river Jordan. They're saying, tell us more. And a lot of people, the more they listen to John, they, they embraced what he was saying. Matthew says they were confessing their sins. And then they were baptized by him in the river Jordan because remember, John's an innovator. And this is the first time in recorded history that we have any record of any one person baptizing another. There, there were religious washings, but those were always done by the person. But this is the first time that someone is baptizing someone. And this is brand new. And so people are talking about it and people have never seen this before and people have never heard this message before. And they're out there confessing their sins apart from the temple, apart from the sacrifices in Jerusalem, apart from the priesthood. So this is all a bit controversial. It's all a bit in your face. It's, it's all a bit rebellious to, to the religious ways. So people, people have mixed feelings and people are drawn to it and people are intrigued by it. And so not only were people coming and being a part of it and saying, baptize me. And, and when John would baptize them, it was, it was their way of saying, I embrace this message, I believe this message. I am reordering my life based on new values from a new vision for what my life is supposed to look like. But not everybody was as happy. And Matthew points it out and says, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptized, he said, not only were people coming because they believed it, but some people were coming because they were threatened by it. They found it troubling. And Matthew introduces us to a group of people that we are gonna find throughout this story, all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And he does something here that's really interesting. Uh, we, we don't normally pick up on it because it's not our time and it's not our world, but everybody then would have understood the significance of this. These are two groups of people who did not travel together. You might as well call them Democrats and Republicans. Uh, the Pharisees were the right-wingers and the Sadducees were the progressives, progressives on the left side of things. Uh, Pharisees were complete legalists. They had so many different rules, so many different commandments, over 600 of them. The Sadducees were a little bit more open-minded. Th these are two people that didn't get along on anything. They didn't agree on anything. They had deep theological disagreements, deep political disagreements, deep social disagreements, economic disagreements. But yet here they are, Matthew says, as a united front. John is such a threat they feel that he is jeopardizing their way of life so much that they have joined forces in standing against John. This is how big of a deal what John is saying because the kingdom of God is a controversial message. The idea that the king has come near, it is a message that offends. It is a message that attracts and repels all at the same time. And these guys weren't out there with an open mind. They were out there to shut it down. 
And so it says, when John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, it's really important to note here that John would not have had a great television ministry. People don't tune in for that. Most people don't show up for that. He holds no punches. You bunch of poisonous predators, offspring of poisonous predators. And everybody's turning around and they're looking and they're like, here's this educated, sophisticated group of religious leaders who look the part and speak the part. And he's just called them poisonous predators. These are the ones who are supposed to love God the most. And he called them poisonous predators. These are the people who knew the Bible the best and he just called them poisonous predators. These are the people who prayed the most and gave the most. These are the people who believed in mission trips and were thought to be the closest to God. And he just looked up at them and he said, you poisonous predators, you're preying upon men and women and children with your religion, with your system. You're the self-appointed gatekeepers of who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom. And you're the self-appointed representatives and mouthpieces of God. And you've tried to declare who God loves and who God hates and who God has room for and who God's invited and who he's disinvited. You poisonous predators. You're destroying people with your rigid interpretation, your endless rules, your lack of concern about the really important things like love and mercy and justice and compassion. You've sank your teeth into people with your religion and you've caused trauma, you've caused pain, you've brought unrest. It's unhealthy, you poisonous predators. You've abused people with the truth or with slivers of the truth. You've wounded people with the poison of your religious system. You poisonous predators. Woo! Yeah, okay. They didn't clap. John asked a rhetorical question. They said, well, who warned you? You guys here to get baptized? Is that why you're here? I love a sarcastic guy. I love, I, I love sarcasm. You guys are here to be baptized, aren't you? Well, who warned you about all of this? And then he gave them this message. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, guys, why don't you prove your faith? Why don't you prove your faith that it's legitimate? And we know that over in Luke chapter three, and you can jot that down. In Luke chapter three, Luke writes about it. And the fruit that he's talking about, the proof that he's talking about is how they would treat other people. And, and John is basically saying, guys, prove your faith by showing me your love for people, your patience towards people, your kindness towards people, your mercy towards people, your gentleness towards people. Prove your faith, prove your love for God by how you actually treat people. Until then, go home. Until then, Shut up, because the days, the days of having a theology that you can hide behind and hate people, it's over. The days of hiding behind your doctrine and hiding behind it and lobbing hate grenades, it's over. The days of hating and mistreating and being unkind to people who disagree with you politically or socially or economically, it's over. There's a new day dawning. There's a new era beginning. There's a new set of values and a new vision that's being cast. 
So you can get in or you can get out, but you cannot stay neutral. He says, do not think that you can say to yourselves, don't try to justify yourselves by saying we have Abraham as our father. That's no big deal. God can take this pile of rocks over here and make more children of Abraham. Your national citizenship, your pedigree, who your grandmama was, your grandfather was, has nothing to do with anything. That doesn't mean anything. You go prove your faith by how you treat other people. Stop with all the cop-outs and all the self-justification. He says, the ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. When the king comes, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Gentlemen, judgment's coming. The kingdom has come near. The king is coming. So you better decide right now whose side you're on, your side or his side. Whose kingdom are you gonna live for, yours or his? It's time to rethink everything. It's time to reorganize your values around his vision, not yours. It's time to know what the king says is most important. The king is coming and he will be the dividing line. And everybody's gonna get to decide whose side they're on. Everybody's gonna get to decide whose kingdom they're surrendered to. Now I think below all of this, John is clearing out the clutter. He's clearing out the obstacles. That's his job. And John knows that one of the greatest obstacles in the way for people receiving the king is religion. And John's message is, is so clear. It's there. He's saying, don't confuse the religion of men with the kingdom of God. That was his message to them. That's his message to us. Don't confuse the religion of men with the kingdom of God. They're not the same thing. So how do you know? Because religion says God loves you but he doesn't like you. And a lot of us grew up with that version of religion. And if a lot of you were to paint the face of God or imagine the face of God, you imagine a God who's got a frustrated countenance, an angry countenance, a scowl on his face, but not one that looks proud or happy, smiling in your direction. And you know what I know about all of us? We don't enjoy the company of people that we know don't like us. We don't wanna be close with people we know don't like us. And it doesn't matter if they tell us, listen, I want you to know I love you, I just don't like you. Oh, okay, great, well, let's go hang out. We don't do that. And religion comes along with its messaging and its tone and its rhetoric. It's spoken and unspoken that God loves you, he has to, he's perfect, he's God, he's love. But he really doesn't like you. And you, you grow up and you believe that God doesn't like you and so you never feel comfortable with the things of God. You don't, you don't feel comfortable with the people of God. And you have a difficult time drawing near to God because in your heart of hearts somewhere you think that God doesn't like you. And nobody likes drawing near to someone who doesn't like them. But John's saying don't confuse the religion of men with the kingdom of God. They're not the same thing. Religion keeps you uncertain about your relationship with God. Does he love me? Does he hate me? Am I in? Am I out? Have I, have I prayed enough? Am I good enough? Have I attended enough? Have I given enough? 
And you never quite know where you stand because when you don't know where you stand, you're controlled by that and you're coerced by that. And, and it just becomes a nasty system of you're just doing it for all the wrong reasons. Religion loves to keep people uncertain. It's like, where are you in God? I don't really know. I hope, I hope that he does. And I'd like to think that he does, but there's no assurance in the religion of men. There's no confidence in the religion of men. And John says, don't confuse the religion of men with the kingdom of God. Religion uses fear as a motivator. That's why a lot of us grew up when the evangelists would come, he'd tell us a story about that family of five and they had a car wreck and the gas spilled and all of a sudden there was a, there was a flame that started and the fire was on fire and, and nobody could get them out and they were all screaming, we're burning, we're burning. And, and then he'd look at us and said, do you wanna do that for all of eternity? And then he said, let me tell you about a little girl who got on the elevator and the elevator got stuck in the building, caught on fire. And she was like, help me, help me, help me. And they couldn't get her out. Do you wanna burn for all of eternity? Would you pray this prayer? Prayer is like, yeah, I'll pray this prayer. Very scared the hell out of me. I'll do whatever you want me to do in this moment. And we do what we do out of fear. And it's a, it's a motivating thing, but who, who wants children that approach us because they're afraid of us? Or religion of men, he says, it's not the kingdom of God. Religion, religion feeds pride through comparison. And let me tell you, let me tell you what us religious people do. Let me tell you what church people do. We, we were schooled in this. We're good at this. We find someone, we find someone that we believe we're doing just a little bit better than they are. And we'll pick on their sin. And their sin is never the sin that we struggle with. We always have to find another sin that somebody else is struggling with. It's not our sin. And then we think to ourselves, their sin's a little bit worse than our sin. And their sin's, their sins causes a little bit more havoc. And it's the real problem. And at least my sin's not their sin. And it causes us to feel good about ourselves. And all of a sudden, we've got a little bit of, you know, a little bit of swagger about ourselves because, you know, yeah, we're sinners. You know, we would always know, yeah, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like, that sinner, I'm not like those sinners. I, I don't do that and I would never do this and I would never say that and you'll never catch me you know, guilty of that. That's what religion of men do. Jesus, John says, don't confuse the religion of men with the kingdom of God. Religion makes us more angry and less loving. You have less room when you get religious for people who disagree with you. You push people who are different from you away. You have less patience with people who don't live up to your standards rather than being patient and gracious toward them. And then religion turns truth into a weapon. The religion of men takes truth and it uses it to hurt people and wound people and embarrass people and insult people. It becomes a hammer over somebody's head. It becomes a sword that we cut through people with. Truth is not something we use against someone. Truth is something that we use for someone. When Jesus showed up, he leveraged the truth for freedom, to set people free. He leveraged the truth in order to bring life and joy and peace. And there is a difference. There is a difference when we use truth against someone and when we use truth for someone. Don't confuse the religion of men with the kingdom of God because religion can become a kingdom in and of itself that causes us to miss the kingdom of God. So John, he continued doing what he was doing. And then the next day, this is where it all ends. The next day, there were the thousands of people once again and John's preaching and he's baptizing. He's preaching and he's baptizing. And he looks up and he sees his cousin, the carpenter from Nazareth. 
And Jesus knows who he is. And John knows who he is. And as their eyes lock with each other and Jesus begins to meander through the crowd, edging closer and closer and closer to John, John stops what he's doing. He stops his sermon and he says, there he is. Here he is, the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. God's Lamb who has come to prove God's love. Jesus walks to John in the water and he says, baptize me. And John says, not on your life, you baptize me. And Jesus said, no, I'm here to identify with what you're saying that it's true because the King has come and the time to choose sides has come. The time to declare allegiances have come. And John baptized Jesus. And it says that a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And so it began a revolution of love and grace, a radical new set of values with a radical new vision of what it means to be fully human. A kingdom with upside down values where the last shall be first and those who are willing to lose their life, they will be the ones who find it. A kingdom that would offer values and ethic and a vision and a law. And John says, behold the Lamb of God. And in that moment, in his own way, and in the story that Matthew is telling, Matthew is saying to the world, the king had come to die on the cross in my place for my sin. In order to bring us the good news of the kingdom, and the good news of the kingdom is that God, he's not angry with you. He loves you. He loves you just as you are. And the good news of the kingdom is not only does he love you, loves you, but he likes you. And he wants to be near you. And he wants you to draw near to him. He came to bring the good news of the kingdom. This is we're not motivated by fear in the kingdom of God. We're motivated by the love of the King in the kingdom of God. And when we draw near him, perfect love, it casts out all fear and we lose the terror of a holy God and we find the wonder of God. The good news of the kingdom says you're not good with God because of what you've done, but you can be good with God and know you're good with God and be confident and be assured that you're good with God because of what God has done for you. The good news of the kingdom is that God is not a scorekeeper. He's a father. His love is unconditional, without prerequisites, without strings attached. The religion of men says you need to work, you need to do, but the kingdom of God and the good news of the kingdom of God says there's nothing you need to do. He did all the heavy lifting. It's all been done. It is finished. You're invited in. Religion says you better get cleaned up. You better get dressed up. You better stop that and start this. You better get yourself in line. But the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God says come as you are, just as you are. He loves you. He's done everything necessary to invite you in and bring you in. You don't have to feel guilty for what there's grace for. And you don't have to feel like a failure for what there's forgiveness for. And you don't have to be haunted by a past that can be redeemed. The kingdom of God has come near. 
Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, if you've never received him as Savior, as Lord, as King, in this moment, I want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer by faith. You don't have to pray it out loud, but just in your own heart, right there where you are. If this is the moment that there's something inside of you that says, I feel like this is a step that I want to take. Today, I want to make a decision. I want to choose a side. I, I want to declare my allegiance. You pray a prayer like this, a Heavenly Father, I believe that you sent your son to die for my sin in my place on the cross that he was raised from the dead so that I could be fully forgiven and brought in to the family of God. And right now, just as I am, I receive that gift of grace. And today I declare that you're not only my savior, but you are my king. I submit to you, I wanna reorganize my life around the values that come from your vision for what my life should be. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here and you pray that prayer and you say, Trevor, I, I just wanna let you know, I prayed that prayer. Nobody's gonna come to you, nobody's gonna embarrass you, nobody's gonna ask you to do anything else, but you slip up a hand and say, Trevor, I prayed that prayer just now and I meant, I meant those words with all my heart. There's a hand, and there's a hand. And Anybody else, you just slip it up for just a moment. Just say, that, that was me. I, I, I took that step. There's another. Thank you. And I understand. It can be an intimidating thing to raise a hand. And you don't have to raise your hand. But in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And we're going to be reminded about this good news of just as we are. And how we're loved. And, and if you want to find a place to pray down here up front, feel free. It, some of our pastors are down here. We're available to pray with you and to talk with you. But as we sing this song, I want you to think about the truth of it and the good news behind it. Father, speak to our hearts in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said.